Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Something has gone haywire in the Republicans' collective spleen. Led, as always, by vituperator-in-chief Donald Trump, the Republicans have devolved into bully-boy behavior that would relegate even a nursery school student to a timeout in the corner. Concluding a notably lengthy and unfocused speech in New Hampshire, Trump pledged to eliminate individuals he branded as communists, Marxists, fascists, and radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, echoing the tones of fascist dictators gone by. Meanwhile, various court efforts to keep Trump within a few miles of civility continued with checkered success. After the D.C. Circuit entered an administrative stay of Judge Tanya Chutkin's gag order, Trump went on a series of deranged tirades against Chutkin, special counsel Jack Smith, and, incredibly, Smith's family. In Georgia, Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee issued a protective order running to all parties against the release of sensitive discovery materials. And in Washington, the new House Speaker cobbled together a bipartisan package that funded the government for roughly two more months. This maneuver, however, posed the potential for backlash from staunch MAGA hardliners, whose discontent led to the downfall of Kevin McCarthy. As the week drew to a close, a flurry of chaotic behavior reminiscent of a playground squabble unfolded. McCarthy was observed engaging in what appeared to be a kidney punch to one of his adversaries. House Oversight Chair James Comer labeled a Democratic member a liar and a smurf, while Senator Mark Wayne Mullen from Oklahoma notably rose to challenge a hearing witness to fisticuffs. To try to come to grips with Trump's completely unhinged rhetoric and its ramifications in the political sphere and the ongoing criminal and civil trials, as well as his party's bratishness, we welcome three great commentators who know our political landscape left, right, and center. And they are Alison Camerata, a journalist, author, anchor and correspondent for CNN. In her distinguished career, Allison has covered stories nationally, internationally. She's earned two Emmy Awards for her breaking news coverage. In 2017, she published her debut novel, Amanda Wakes Up, which was selected by NPR as one of the best books of the year. And word on the street is she has a memoir coming out in the spring. Is that true? I can confirm that. March. Wow. I know. What was it like writing? Uh, Long, rewarding, cathartic. It's been a great experience. Is Diane Renault in it at all? Well, she's certainly adjacent to it because it does touch on my 20s, which you are also adjacent to, (laughs) and some of the misadventures during that time. So yes. There you go. Great. We'll look forward to that. Kyle Cheney, his first visit on Talking Feds. Always fun when that happens. Kyle's the senior legal affairs reporter at Politico. He specializes now in the post-January 6th landscape and, uh, to my mind, is one of the seriously two or three go-to tweeters for all manner of developments in Trump world. Is that the right uh, noun, tweeters? It is now. Tweet. It is now. 
Kyle, thanks so much. Welcome for your uh, maiden voyage on Talking Feds. Excited to be here. And I'm so proud to say this, a, a regular and stalwart of the podcast, Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large at The Bulwark, founder and director of Defending Democracy Together. He famously, previously founded and edited the influential conservative magazine, The Weekly Standard. He served in senior positions in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. And he is the host of the excellent video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. Thanks, as always, for joining. Good to be with you, Harry. All right. Let's start with the apparent lunatic running for president at the same time he's running for his liberty and trials all over the country. I'm really not sure we've ever been at this point in our history when the leading candidate for major party nomination declares, we will root out the communists, Marxist, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. You know, I've tried for seven years to shy away from Nazi or fascist analogies, but Really, is there any way in which this language is less toxic than Hitler 1932 or Mussolini 1925? Well, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, sometimes you actually have to call it out. I think that we do a disservice when we just call it rhetoric. These are his plans. He's telling us his plans. Let's take this seriously. And so, as you know, he's proudly talking about his what sound like authoritarian principles. And so he's going to completely change the Department of Justice to allow him to persecute and punish and root out his political enemies and opponents. And it's like the Maya Angelou quote always comes up, but when a man tells you who he is, believe him the first time. And so the first run, you know, President Trump, Donald Trump at that time alluded to some of these things. It was a more veiled process, but then we saw him in action. And now he's really spelling it out. And what's interesting to me is that we know from the reporting that he wasn't that interested in a lot of the aspects of being president. You know, the New York Times reported that he would watch TV much of the day. He didn't care about the policies. He didn't want to be briefed on policy papers. But what the part that he did like, it appeared, was the power part. And so he will concentrate that in the next time. So he will change the Department of Justice. He will put in his toadies who are, you know, lining up. And we know what he thinks of justice. You know, it doesn't apply to him. And so, you know, just buyer beware. I mean, everybody, he's quite clear about his plans. You know, there used to be that debate, should we take President Trump literally or seriously? Let's do both. Let's do both right now. In that vein, too, you know, there, there's been this sort of remarkable case laid out by some of the people prosecuting Donald Trump that, you know, especially, you know, Jack Smith and the special counsel team have argued in favor of a gag order for him, in part by saying Donald Trump will throw these incendiary lines out there that he knows will provoke a response from his supporters that could be violent or threatening to people in government. But he does it in a way that gives him some deni- some arm's length deniability where when people are on the, on the left are triggered and say, look, he's using rhetoric out of 1930s Germany, out of you know, Hitler-like rhetoric. I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I just don't like these people. And I used colorful language because I'm a colorful person. And, and everyone on the left will say, well, no, we know what you really mean. And he'll say, of course not. I mean, he, and he'll just be thrilled that everyone has been triggered by what he said. And, and he'll point to that. And then say when people are trying to silence him and, and squelch his First Amendment rights when they say he shouldn't talk like that. 
And so I think it's, it serves sort of mul- multiple purposes for him. And, and in fact, I referenced the gag orders on purpose because it seems that since the gag orders were lifted by appellate judges, particularly the one in Washington, he is even more leaning into that alarming rhetoric because he feels even more unburdened by some of those constraints that he may have been before. I do think it's been a mistake. The clownishness of Trump personally, his distractions, his the MAGA movements, internists and warfare and kookiness and all this, that is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that it's an authoritarian movement that has its own idiocies. But you know what? Most authoritarian movements have had that. And they've had their fights and they've had their failures and they've had their incompetence. And at the end of the day, they can still do an unbelievable amount of damage. And I think there's been too much focus on the ridiculous character of a lot of of Trump and Trumpism and not enough on the dangerous character. I think that is finally coming into focus with some of his statements recently. It shouldn't have taken this long. Obviously, we did have January 6th to go through. We had the testimony of the senior DOJ officials, and we know what happened to DOD in those last few weeks of December and early January of 2020, 2021. Somehow that stuff, it sunk in with some of us, obviously, but it didn't sink in widely. I'm not sure if this is going to sink in anymore widely, but I'm slightly encouraged that people are finally becoming as alarmed as they should be about Trump 2.0. And I think one of the things I've, Sarah Long, one of my colleagues found in these focus groups is people aren't alarmed as they should be, in my swing voters and such. And they sort of say, well, look, Trump is president and you all screamed and yelled, but at the end of the day, our civil liberties exist and the system exists and the courts exist and the media exists. And you may not like parts of it, but they're not crazy. It hasn't been destroyed. It's not Germany. It's not Italy, whatever, not even Venezuela or Hungary. And the, the guardrails held more or less, obviously, in, in after November 3rd. But I think the, it's hard to explain to people that, well, that was Trump 1.0 when he was constrained by both actual guardrails that had been created over decades uh, and that were stronger than they are now after four years of Trump. And he was constrained by a Republican establishment and by all kinds of other uh, characters uh, in the civil servants who were there and whom he didn't know how to or didn't yet have the in a way ability to get rid of so but trump 2.0 will be like the last year of trump 1.0 or the last two or three months of trump 1.0 right it'll be it'll be a justice department run by the people who were rebuffed by Barr and by the others by rosen and these senior people at justice it'll be a defense department run by the people whom general milley and others stopped from exerting power in those last few weeks and months of the Trump presidency. And people really should be alarmed about that. And it's it's hard to be alarmed all the time. And it's hard to keep saying you're alarmed. And then you get a little ridiculed because, oh, come on, you know, and and Trump's a good demagogue. He's good at mixing the the incendiary stuff with some humor of a kind, kind of flamboyant con man sort of thing. And you don't think, okay, he's the con man. He says things he shouldn't say, but really, really, really is he an authoritarian? But people need to go back and look at authoritarians like Mussolini and Hugo Chavez and others. They were showmen. In a weird way, we're able to make them make voters and people in their nations less alarmed than they should have been about what was coming. And I think the people around Trump, especially the MAGA movement, is dead serious. And incidentally, final point, it's very powerful. There's also a little bit of a tendency, I find that I was just at a big democracy conference, you know, at a prestigious university. And there's still the sense that, well, there's the establishment, they're sort of sensible. And then there's the fringe groups, 
Now, unfortunately, the fringe groups have sort of gotten a lot of power recently, but it's still kind of a weird thing that in the Republican Party, Trump is powerful and that there are all these, all this money and the Heritage Foundation is doing this thing. These are big, well-funded, powerful groups with their own infrastructure, their own media system. Elon Musk, what a buffoon. He's Twitter's not worth as much as when he bought it and he's ruining it all. Elon Musk, who is totally part of this movement, as we've seen quite recently, controls a pretty important media platform. Rupert Murdoch continues to control. I mean, the idea that this is just kind of, you know, oddball, fringy goofballs, and then there's the real world of, you know, CNN and Politico and the Bulwark. It's a world, of course, I'm friendly to. And then there's the oddball world. The oddball world is strong and powerful and is about to nominate for president someone who won the presidency once, came pretty close a second time. One of our major parties is about to nominate that person, it looks like. So I am alarmed. Yeah, and precariously close in current polling. It's not simply that his rhetoric has pole vaulted to a different level, but as you say, uh, Bill, there's a infrastructure. He's he's basically introduced, here's your new DOJ. You know, yesterday's fringe group talk about expanding the Overton envelope. It's not simply his crazed ravings. It's also white papers and concrete plans for rolling over the Constitution in many ways. Your point on buffoonery really struck me, because when you think about it now, Charlie Chaplin, the great dictator, captures a buffoonish aspect of Hitler. Mussolini captures a buffoonish aspect of Mussolini in and of you know himself. And it's true that really was a, a feature even in their primes but certainly didn't in any way mitigate the social disaster. I wanted to ask about two groups and how how they received the rhetoric. So the one arguable attribute we've credited Trump with all the way along was a sense of his own base. He he understands and channels them, and that's what we've sort of missed, et cetera. Are the American people this hateful and venomous? Did Trump make them that way or just sort of reveal their latent rancor? No, no, no. I, I don't think they're most of the American people that have. I think a large, some chunk in the middle of the American people are not sufficiently alarmed by hatefulness, among others. And it also appeals to some things that some resentments and grudges and anxieties they have. They wouldn't quite do what say what Trump says, perhaps, and they wouldn't say what people scream about at the MAGA rallies. But are they clapping in their living rooms? They're at least, so some are clapping in their living rooms, some are shaking their heads in their living rooms, but are still going to vote for Trump and still be okay with the MAGA agenda because they fear other things more and they don't fear this enough. I'm struck, and that's not just white working class voters. I mean, I'm very struck by the, which I think has been under, underweighted over the years, the upper middle class, let's call it, Trump supporters. It's not like he doesn't get a heck of a lot of votes from college-educated white voters. He splits Majority of white, right? yeah. Yeah, he splits, he splits college-educated with Biden. He loses women, wins men. And, you know, maybe they care about the tax cuts. They don't like certain things that are happening. Some things they're right not to like, in my opinion, that are happening on college campuses and stuff. They blame Biden for the college left. It's a little ridiculous, but it spills over. And yes, so it's not so much that everyone's a bigot, it's that people aren't scared enough of bigotry and demagoguery. They don't see where those consequences could go. And here, weirdly, the Trump first term, which for some of us is pretty appalling, in a weird way is helping him a lot. Sarah finds this in the fight focus groups all the time. I want Trump because he'll really blow things up. He'll drain the swamp. He'll really, you know, blow up Washington. 
was that a good enough? Don't you need to have someone who you know could like actually run the country effectively too? Oh yeah, well Trump could do that too. He was an he was president. The economy was okay. We didn't get in any wars. The the world wasn't blowing up the way it is under Biden. Trump is weirdly getting the best of both worlds right now. Now maybe that's can be affected by a campaign, obviously that points out these things more more starkly and gets people more worried. But right now he's in a sort of weird sweet spot of being a former incumbent president under whom people think maybe incorrectly, that the country was in decent shape and the outsider in a country where two thirds of the voters, three quarters of the voters are unhappy with the way things are going and want change. Very far from Reagan sitting on a hill, right? Conventional wisdom has always been that like these these sort of abstract concepts of the future and the fate of democracy and the things that you know, the norms of government are things that don't click or resonate with voters. But I think, you know, there is sort of a data point that challenges that, which is the 2022 uh, midterm elections, where I think that actually played a larger role in people sort of limiting the Republican gains in the House and keeping the Senate in Democratic hands in a way that no one expected going into it. You know, there was always a question of, are Democrats going to be running ads on like the January 6th committee's findings? And I think late in the campaign, they actually did. And it showed, I think the polling afterwards showed that that resonated in a, in a way. So I think Bill's point is right, which is that right now, in the moment we're in, in the campaign cycle, there isn't that appreciation for that issue at the moment. Trump is polling pretty evenly with Biden. But I think in the rigor of a campaign, when that does get brought out, it actually was shown to be sort of effective with voters. And I think it becomes more real the closer we get to Election Day 24. My only qualification of that would be it might get more real or or not. I mean, it got one reason it got so real in Michigan and Pennsylvania. One reason why the House losses were less than expected is that Dobbs had happened and people really did think Think they were voting on that important issue of reproductive rights. And certainly that was key in Michigan and Pennsylvania, key in all the state level right? governor's races, key in Virginia here where I live last two weeks ago, because, uh, you know, it really was on the ballot. I mean, literally the law would be different in Virginia in January if the Republicans had won the state legislature as opposed to losing both houses. Having said that, they lost both houses. They lose 21-19 and 51-49. They got more votes statewide, it turns out, I think, by a tiny margin than the Democrats. Virginia is a Biden plus 10 state. So all the Democrats were saying, whoa, that Virginia thing, Democrats are in good shape. I don't know, really? If we have that result in Virginia a year from now, Trump's going to be president, right? I mean, if Virginia's even or plus one Democratic. Now, I, there are all kinds of things that will happen. But, but is abortion as powerful an issue at the federal level as it is at the state was at the state level? Do people believe there'll be a national ban? Trump, who is a clever demagogue for all the incendiary stuff, what's he not been incendiary on? Abortion. Where is he already? He's basically moved to states' rights. He's basically moved to, Trump will say, I'm proud that we overturned Roe. And now every state can make up their mind. Now, can he really convince people in October in Michigan that he and a Republican Congress are not going to do a national ban or or restrict what Gretchen Whitmer and the Democrats had legislated in Michigan and Shapiro in Pennsylvania and uh, Governor Hobbs in Arizona and so forth? Maybe not. Maybe that issue still is powerful. But the Democrats who were taking, and I, I was very involved in the 2022 stuff. I think the election denial stuff did hurt them, but it hurt them at the governor and state secretary of state level, whether it hurts Trump at the national level and whether if abortion is less powerful and it's all just about the economy and are you unhappy about inflation? I, I'm a little worried about the 2024 could revert to 2022, but it could also revert to 2016, if you want to think of it that way, where there's an incumbent Democratic president and people are not so happy about the governance of, of by that party. 
I love listening to these guys and big political minds about. Doesn't that seem like the setup to a, a real takedown? Yeah, this is like going to be a totally devastating <laughs> comment by Allison. That's okay. <laughs> but you're loving it. Okay. All right. <laughs> I can't believe you guys are so on to me. Like, I, I feel like somehow you've gotten the playbook and I'm not happy yeah. about that. But in any event, my point is, is that I see it in more psychological terms always with Trump rather than any sort of political strategy or anything. Mm -hmm. And I think that humans are persuadable generally. And I think that there are more followers than there are leaders. That just makes sense. And we want to be, I think, inspired and motivated by our leaders. And Trump, Donald Trump never appeals to our better angels. That's not in his vocabulary. That's not who he is. That's what the best leaders do. He appeals to our more base devils. And that's appealing on some level. We like when that's unleashed in us, in our human spirit, when somebody gives us permission to be as coarse and as vulgar as we might internally some days feel. And there's Donald Trump saying it, and that gives us permission. And I can just only relate to it, you know, in the years that I spent at Fox, where I was an anchor and, and reporter, and the people who a lot, who half of America think are so vile, some of these commentators who say such vile, disgusting stuff, at a cocktail party, they're fun to be around. They're fun. They're polite. They'll hold the door open for you. They'll go buy you a drink. But if you give them permission, they let it fly. I'm sure it was like that in Germany in 32, those erudite Germans, right? For sure. And so my, my point is that the reason that that appeals, I think, to the public is because they can kind of relate to it on some level. And they don't really re think that it's Nazi rhetoric. It's more like, oh, yeah, I understand. Like that, that's sort of it's easy to understand. And Donald Trump is is spooning it out. And I just think that I don't know, that that to me is why people are willing to overlook. It's sort of like when Democrats used to overlook Bill Clinton's infidelities. Like, ask a lot of people, that's unappealing. Like most people in their marriage are faithful and want their leader to be faithful, but I kind of like what he stands for and other things, and he's on my team. And so we're just gonna overlook that unpleasantness. And I think that that's what people do with Trump. And when you say psychological, I just want to make sure I understand this. You're saying, you know, it's not some kind of he's read Mein Kampf and whatever, but that's just him. And it, and the vituperation just flows. Is that? Well, I'm saying that the people who follow him, it, it hits them more emotional, psychological level than a political calculus level. Gotcha. All right. Well, let me turn this back to the press. Is the press doing an adequate job of conveying the stakes here. There's been, along with Trump, all the way through a kind of meta criticism of the press, like from 2015, giving him too much time. But I mean, there's a there feels to me like a pretty broad consensus, like, holy shit, this is really a, a different animal. But, you know, I've heard it both ways and some it's kind of people have passed on or maybe it's a challenge just to do it, especially because some of the most um, willing recipients of the Trump message actually don't listen to traditional media. But are we, uh, you know, looking at a, a time when we're going to look back and say, oh, man, the press really failed at a critical juncture? Uh, I mean, I'm happy to take a stab. I, I, you know, look, I think there I always find the the sort of sweeping criticism of the media to be a little bit off the mark just because it's it's very nuanced. I think there are certain outlets, certain reporters, even within those outlets who get it right consistently. And I think it's just sort of reporting without euphemism what you're seeing as opposed to, for example, the way we cover 
January 6th can be describing it when, you know, there's a, we have lot, long newsroom debates about, do you call it, is it, is it a protest? Is it an insurrection? Is it a riot? Is it, how do you adequately and accurately convey? Is, is every individual person who was there an insurrectionist or or a rioter or a, a protest? Like, it, it's sort of, those discussions and d- debates are happening in newsrooms constantly, I think, with the goal of getting it correct. And I think, on the whole, the media gets it correct more often now than not, with some glaring departures from that. I think there is sort of a an understanding of sort of again the threats to democracy that we've seen on um, you know sharply escalating over the last few years and write, writing about them and speaking about them accurately is it done often enough probably not but is it done more so I think the press sort of moves you read to the Overton window before I think that that it's kind of like that it's it's we've seen shifts in the right direction on how to talk about these these issues but it's never going to fully be adequate or maybe we'll get more adequate over time and there is a kind of numbing effect, right? Well, there's definitely, I think, there's definitely a numbing effect when we just cover the incremental steps, the legalese, the incremental who's uh, being called in to proffer something like that. I feel like that that can definitely lull people into submission. But to your point about the stakes, if I were running a news organization, I would have a segment every day called The Stakes and you, because it's um, endless. I mean, you can just t- talk about one day environment. You can talk about one day Department of Justice. You can talk about one day. They're, the stakes are important and they're more important, I would say, than the horse race. But the horse race is easier, as we all know. And I can't remember which editor recently, like this week, said it's the stakes, not the odds. And we just have to to rebalance it to, to get away from the odds, though that's easy because polling, to put it up, it's graphic, it's easy, it's digestible. But we have to do a deeper dive and every day have a graphic and somebody an interview about the stakes because that's what we're all talking about. But I mean, it, you know, the odds in the horse race are important. And so it's hard to blame people on myself. You know, it's not irrelevant who's going to be the nominee and what the odds are of that person being the nominee. I hear you, Bill, and they're fun. But I mean, right now. No, I'm with you totally. I'm just saying that it's too much to expect that it's going to be entirely the other way. And it shouldn't be the entirely the other way. And people are entitled to report on on the horse race too. So, and I, but I do tend to think that overwhelms, overwhelms isn't quite right, but it mutes or takes the edge off what's at stake in a sense. It's also partly the frog in the boiling water problem that you identified. And I think Kant did too. I think that is real. I'm very struck by that, that the just stuff gets normalized and we all said, oh, it's normalizing this. And sure enough, it normalized it. And all of our saying it shouldn't be normalized didn't matter because at some point, I mean, he's pre- he was president of the United States. He's the front runner for the Republican nomination. There's a limit to what the mainstream media can do about this at this point. And the mainstream media is not as powerful as it once was. It was never as powerful as people thought. Joe McCarthy seems to flourish despite a very powerful New York Times and, and early network TV. And George Wallace won Democratic primaries in 1972, despite the fact that Walter Cronkite and Chet Huntley and stuff didn't like him, presumably. And the Times and the mainstream media were much more powerful and big city newspapers were much more powerful and mostly were not on board that kind of stuff. Now, maybe ultimately they were able to constrain some of these movements like McCarthy and Wallace. I do think Trump's triumph in 2015-16 probably was made possible or easier maybe by the fragmentation of the media that has gone further in that direction, not not less. And so we still think, I do too personally, that you know what it does matter what CNN and Politico report, and 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 I'm and the bulwark for that matter. And I, we're all proud, I think, of trying to do our best here. But it's just as an empirical matter, it's just not the case anymore that the mainstream media dominates, or that most people read it, and f- just a few oddballs are watching, you know, Fox and, and and News Nation and reading crazy stuff on social media. I mean, just empirically. Are Rupert Murdoch and Elon Musk, are they not the two most powerful media people in America now? 
I mean, I don't know. Is maybe the editor of the New York Times is as powerful and more powerful? Maybe who? Particularly when one of the planks of the Trump platform is the fake press, you know, actually uh, taking it on directly. This should be a several hour show in and of its own as the stakes, as, as Allison says. Let's just do an exit question. One word, getting to Bill's point from about 10, 15 minutes ago, the presumably reasonable semi-patriotic person to say, yeah, yeah, I see the rhetoric, but we're going to be okay here. Let's not get too crazy. We have the courts, we have the press such as it is, et cetera. So here's the question. Is it hyperbolic to conclude that the American experiment is literally on the ballot in 2024? No. <laughs> One no. I mean, I've thought a little bit about what happens if Trump wins. What do, what do I do? What do people do? You know, yeah. I, I think the guardrails will get much further weakened. They won't go away entirely. Not every judge can be replaced immediately. Uh, there's a massive civil society in America and the private sector and universities that the federal government, thank God, does not control. It's harder to be Orban in America than it is in Hungary. I mean, in, in many, many, many ways. No great credit to us as like individuals, it's not because we're better people, it's because we have 200 years of building up these institutions that are a little harder to destroy. But the degree of erosion in a Trump second term would really be startling. And it's not that there would never be another election, but I think you'd be on a path that we haven't ever been on. I mean, it could be the beginning of a in the South. I mean, that is to say, that's probably the best analogy in American history, where you had a decisive moment in, I guess it would be the 80s, 90s, right, in, in the 19th century, which really set a path for the next 50, it took 50, 60, 70 years to, to begin to undo. Yeah. And also, I would just say that the guardrails, the last time, held by a threat. I mean, if, if Raffensperger hadn't been there, if Fox hadn't called Arizona the way it did, like, there were a few things that turned the course and they held. But this time, like maybe they've learned how to get around those things. Or they don't care. So I totally agree. With that. I mean, that the, we, the, I was very involved. Harry was the, the Electoral Count Act. And we approved some of those guardrails. And we did, I think. And yeah, are we confident that people are going to care that Republican elected officials are going to say, oh, OK, well, if these are the rules, we just can't do what we thought we could do four years ago. I don't know. Is Speaker Johnson just going to say, well, I don't care what this rule. We're changing this rule. Yeah, that's the other constituency I wanted to ask you guys about, except for time. Yeah, is there no cliff that the Republicans will not drive over with him? You could impose the best, the greatest guardrails the world has ever seen uh, to preserve democracy. And at the end of the day, what we learned in 2020 was that at the end of the day, it matters who the people are in the positions to uphold those guardrails. Because John Eastman was out there saying the electoral count is unconstitutional, so let's just ignore it. And if you have people like that actually making the making the consequential decisions, which you may have in a second Trump term, the guardrails don't matter then. And so they did hold in 2020 because of the, who those people were deciding to uphold them at the moment that it mattered. And so that's why like the guardrails in some ways, yes, they're important and they may hold, but but it depends on who's deciding to uphold them. I mean, we learned that from James Madison, right? I mean, we're really, really uh, going back. I have a one word answer, but it's not a yes or no, but I, I'm going to pick up on what um, Bill said. Hungary. I think we could really go a very far way toward the erosion. All right, man, so much more to think about. But let's move a little bit to the criminal justice and civil justice side, we hope, which many people continue to look at uh, to as the solution to the um, possible catastrophe. Cal, I wanted to ask you, because you focused on it a bit, Trump's rhetoric, gag orders. One clearly important 
benchmark is the day we publish. The D.C. Circuit is hearing arguments today in Trump's appeal of the Chutkin gag order. Uh, you've been following it. Any any thoughts to you know how it plays out or what you think is at stake here? I mean, I don't think this is going to be the last stop for this. This may actually be the first sort of Supreme Court test we get in this particular criminal proceeding. And I think, you know, if you just look at the makeup of the panel, you would probably be happy to be in Jack Smith's shoes for that. And I think, look, Trump now, he's shown that, you know, his, his gag order in New York in the New York civil case was lifted. And immediately he made comments that would have violated the gag order by attacking the judge's clerk in New York, which was prohibited. Um, same thing in D.C. As soon as the, the appeals court stepped in and put a hold on the gag order, Within hours, true social posts attacking Jack Smith as deranged, Trump's commenting in public about Jack Smith's family again, things that would have violated the gag order. I just got to say his family, if I thought there was a third rail of a third rail, it's stunning to me that he said that crap and it's dangerous to them. I think everything he does will feed into how the appeals court panel approaches this. They'll say, you know, one of the things that Trump's lawyers said when they, they were arguing against the gag order was he said, don't impose an order. Let me go talk to my client. I'll tell him what your sort of concerns are. And he'll he'll follow the spirit of it. He doesn't need a court order. Well, we've shown that the second the order doesn't exist, he will go out and do exactly what the spirit of that order was meant to prohibit. And so it showed sort of his, his lawyer to be kind of, he can't have confidence in that. And so I think the appeals court will see that, the panel at the very least, but this is not the end of the road. It's going to go, it could go to the full appeals court bench, the en banc bench, or it could go to the Supreme Court and it could take weeks or months to resolve. Let me put on my nerd legal hat. So I agree. And I think they'll sustain the gag order just very quickly. There's an interesting legal question where Trump is trying to make this like a prior restraint of uh, the highest justification government needs and and the government is saying no it's a category error you this is just you know do you have the right under the law to put on gag orders cuz you're it's not content discrimination you're protecting the sanctity of the trial process etc so i agree i also think they're already writing and it is a very strong panel for smith but they all have to be brooding and nervous. We saw just this week the David DePetro guy who, you know, came in and bludgeons Paul Pelosi with a hammer, a former lib who just listens, you know, to Trump's rhetoric again and again. There's this extra danger with him that he'll inspire some lone wolf. Someone's maybe really going to get hurt for understandable reasons. They're tiptoeing so much on bringing down the hammer, excuse the expression against him, that anyone else would be in jail now. But it's a really precarious, and I'm sure Jack Smith's family now has has to have like 24-hour protection, and it's brutal. Harry, I was just going to ask you that, like, like, is that the repression you really believe? If anybody else had violated a gag order, they go to jail for how long? Like, what would be normal? He is a defendant and he's released by leave of the court under certain conditions. And they would say, I'm those conditions, I'm yanking them now. So it's not like a, it's not a jail sentence. It's I'm determining there's no combination of circumstances that makes the public safe. You have to go to jail. But I mean, basically any defendant who would say that kind of thing. So brazenly crapping all over everybody, excuse the expression. Let me put it to you this way. It kind of goes to what Cal says, because it does seem when there are gag orders, sometimes he um, dials it back a little. 
but there's only so much the system can do. And and Chutkin's trying to put as much room as possible, but a lot of that room has been now burned. And she's going to come to a point where she says, next time, next time, on you know, I'm putting maybe there's two or three times away till she says that, but next time. And then it's kind of up to him. And sometimes it really seems as if he wants it to happen. He wants the sort of martyrdom points or the rebel points. Is he wrong? I mean, he's playing his cards aggressively. Yeah. He's, a, I'd say, an aggressive poker player who does retreat when he's really facing overwhelming odds against him, usually. But he pushes the envelope and bluffs. And so far, he's managed to, for his voters at least, do a lot of damage, I think, some damage to Jack Smith as a kind of prosecutor, a lot of damage to the judges, especially the New York judge in terms of, should we take this judgment seriously? I don't know how much damage in D.C. We've got Judge Cannon, if I can just interject on that, because I'm slightly obsessed with this. Please. Harry, yeah. you and I have been in some legal discuss discussions with your fellow lawyers, and oh, well, she's going to be constrained by wanting to be respected by her peers, and she's not going to just, she's basically just going to put off what is, in fact, the best case, again, the most open and shut case, which affects national security against Trump. I believe she's going to succeed in putting off till after the election. So what he's done, his lawyers, for all that they're idiots and half of them are clowns and they goof up and all, they did manage, they seem to have, I mean, she wants to do it, of course. That's his appointee to the court, gives you a sense of what the second term would be like too, I think. It's really come down to D.C., hasn't it? And, and that's tough. Incidentally, is Trump wrong to think that if he keeps pushing and pushing and she says next time and he finally, what does she, is she puts him in jail for a week? Is that going to hurt Trump's, what would the public polling be of Trump's going to jail for a week? I'd say 70-30 for Trump. People do not think he should be locked up because what he said something rude about a judge or about a judge's clerk. People just say that's ridiculous. He's a presidential. He's a jackass and he's a loudmouth. But you can't lock him up. And fine, he'll get locked up for a week and he'll come out. He'll come out and he'll be eighty-two percent in the Republican primary and he'll be seven points ahead of Biden. I mean, I'm being a little hyperbolic, but I this is the problem and it really is a challenge to the whole system for the reasons both Allison and Kyle said that you need. You know, at the end of the day, these things, the guardrails are not self-enforcing and the gag orders aren't self-enforcing. And if you enforce them, it can backfire and people, it's its a tough situation. But he has no respect for the system, which even the Nixons and the Joe McCarthy's, in a sense, had, or, you know, the, the George Wallace's in a funny way. I mean, and if you're willing to just be so kind of ruthless almost and be willing to just ignore all the norms and just see every chance you can help yourself which was certainly the characteristic of his business life, right, for decades, it, it is, it's dangerous, you know. Let me make a quick Judge Cannon point, because this happened uh, just yesterday as we taped, there's been question, is she in the tank? Is she not in the tank? It just doesn't matter at this point. She's not a strong manager of her own docket, but what she's done most recently is give a huge extension but then not change the trial date. And to me, that was particularly worrisome because it seemed to me, you know, she has one strike against her from way back when. And had she set a very late trial date, it might have given them an ability to go up on appeal. But otherwise, not having done it yet, it feels like it's just process. I don't think the department has any kind of argument, you know, solid argument for recusal yet. And I agree with Bill. She's just death by a thousand cuts. All right. Let me ask this close out on this one. We look to it as salvation, but you've just posited what could happen if he were shortly in jail. His support level overall seems unaffected by 91 counts. What's your thought about how likely it is that his um, prospects would 
erode significantly if if he were to be convicted of something before November 2024, presumably the January 6th case? Or are we placing too much hope in the justice system? The assumption that he'll be helped by being a convicted felon, I think, is probably off the mark. I think in general, it's better to not be a convicted felon running for president than to be a convicted felon. And I think there will be some reversion to the no- to the norm on that. We haven't had a controlled experiment on that in American history. <laughs> we haven't. We may we may very soon. And, <laughs> and I think among his base, as we've said, they're unshakable. They may even get stronger for him. But I think that group of the electorate we talked about that isn't sufficiently alarmed or or maybe malleable or not as focused on this as they as they are on other things may become slightly more focused on this if he were convicted criminally. And, and there is some polling, I can't remember, I've seen some that said, you know, if he were convicted of a crime, it would give people some pause. Maybe, I don't know how much, what segment of the population that is, but it's it's not certainly not a net gain to be a convicted felon, uh, particularly of the grave crimes he's charged with. And remember, this whole time, you know, we've talked about his four formidable qualities, and in some sense, they are. he's never been at 50% even. Uh, you know, you're talking about a margin that one needs to make to be pivotal. There's some polling that people say ahead of time that conviction would be different from indictments. And I think the 91 indictments helps him, not search him in this sense. It just sounds goofy. I mean, what is 91 indictments? Mean? 91 counts. 91 counts. 91 yeah, counts. Right. But right. if he had like one count, you know, or three counts. He had classified documents. He lied about it. He, you know, people say, oh, well, that's serious. Now it just is like, who knows? It's all kinds of stuff. It's some weird case in New York where there's a felony, which isn't a felony. It's a misdemeanor. And then there's a case in Georgia, which is complicated, where people are pleading guilty half the time, but it's the lawyers who told them the th- wrong thing. And then there's the case in Florida, which is, as I said, the most cut and dried, but which is being postponed. I do think the Jack Smith DC thing is is hugely important, partly because the others aren't. I would to be honest. And therefore, and the trial seems pretty well set for March 4th. And you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's going to happen then, probably. Jury selection in February, a real trial, not televised, but covered in real time. And America, the American public is used to getting interested in trials, right? I mean, OJ and all this and kind of, you know, it'll be dramatic. Will he be convicted? Will there be a hung jury? It'll be under appeal. So it'll be, if he's convicted, so it's not quite as determined finally, finally, finally that he's guilty. So I, I do think that actually could affect, and I kind of agree with Kyle, that does probably chop a few points off him if he's convicted by a jury of his peers after a real trial on January 6th. Now it's D.C., so of course they'll say that it's not really a jury of, of his peers or a representative jury. Oh, here's a thing, though. What are the odds of 10 to 2, 11 to 1 hung jury? The odds aren't 0% of that. They're not even 10%, in my opinion. They're 20, 25%. I mean, it's a kind of complicated case, January 6th. It's a legal matter. It would have been better to impeach and convict him. What if it's a hung jury in D.C.? I that's mean, a victory, that's, right? I think it is. I mean, for him, he'll certainly say it is. Even 11-1, yeah. Can you imagine? What what, is the, what does the presidential race look like look like in May if, if it's been 11-1? I think that there is a glazing over factor, obviously, to the 91 counts where people can't keep it straight. And it's, you know, incumbent upon the press as well as his opponents to spell out the ones that really are important to the country. So in other words, okay, he's inflating his own assets and his own uh, property value. Okay, you know, that's wrong. But is it going to change anybody's life at home? Probably not. He's keeping classified, highly classified, top secret documents next to a toilet. A toilet. And we have a picture of it in a bathroom that's open to the public that people who are not terribly screened at Mar-a-Lago, because suspected spies sneak in from time to time, 
that one seems to be one that people could get their heads around. So, I mean, I just think that that people need to kind of focus on what is actually important for national security and for voters. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar feature explains how Donald Trump managed to pay little to no taxes throughout the years based on his business's mammoth losses. And to explain this concept, we are incredibly thrilled to welcome Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette is an Emmy-winning New York Times best-selling author whose live stage show, along with longtime silent partner Teller, has been a long-running hit in Las Vegas as well as on Broadway and on sold-out tours. On TV, he's the co-host of the hit CW series Penn & Teller, Fool Us, and he's made dozens of guest appearances on shows ranging from Modern Family and Friends to The Simpsons and Scorpion. I give you Penn Gillette on Tax Losses. Hey, Harry, let me tell you about tax losses and business expenses tax. Donald Trump's tax returns reveal that he paid little to no taxes in many years between 2015 and 2020. How do you manage to do that? By sustaining in previous years huge business losses. The cumulative claimed losses by Trump's businesses and real estate endeavors totals approximately $313 million. Businesses and individuals are subject to taxes on their profits and income. In certain instances, however, these taxes may be reduced. In particular, tax losses and business expenses often may be deducted from the taxpayer's taxable income. These deductions represent a national policy administered through the tax code of supporting businesses and allowing them to weather difficult tax years. A tax loss occurs when expenses exceed revenue in a given tax year. The losses may be deducted in future tax years in a dollar-for-dollar trade with taxable income. Tax losses also can occur for investments when the value of a capital asset falls. In that instance, the taxpayer can use the capital loss to reduce taxes owed on other capital gains. Tax loss harvesting is the financial strategy of coordinating the selling of capital gains and losses to maximize tax reductions. Another method of claiming deductions on taxable income is through business expenses. The IRS defines deductible business expenses as ordinary and necessary for functioning as a business within a particular industry. An ordinary expense is one that is commonly used and accepted within an industry. A necessary expense is one that is helpful and appropriate for the business. Both criteria must be met for a deduction. Examples of fully deductible business expenses include transportation costs to and from business meetings, utility costs for a building, and regulatory fees for the business. Gift and entertainment may only be partially deducted. Trump took huge advantage of both these categories of deductions. Many of Trump's businesses have regularly declared net income losses since 2015, allowing him to avoid paying taxes on any generated revenue. 
Filings reveal many instances where earnings and expenses for Trump's smaller enterprises were exactly matched, i.e. a net zero revenue, a highly unusual finding that indicates a likelihood of manipulation. This includes the possibility of personal expenses, e.g. loans to his children, being improperly listed as business expenses. Generally speaking, Trump's holdings are filed in a complicated and entangled fashion with shorthand descriptions that signal the possibility of improper and not fully documented business expenses. For Talking Feds, I'm Penn Gillette. You know, the guy in Penn and Teller. Thank you so much, Penn Gillette, for explaining that sometimes slippery concept of tax losses. Penn's always entertaining and educational podcast, Penn's Sunday School, drops every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hi, I'm Maribel Hernandez Rivera, a Deputy National Political Director at the ACLU. The promise of America is to serve as a beacon of hope and freedom for people fleeing persecution, violence, war, and human rights violations around the world. Yet, the Biden administration has chosen to replicate harmful and illegal Trump-era policies that ban people from seeking asylum at the southern border, betraying the ideals that represent the best of our country. Biden's asylum ban is causing needless suffering and placing people at grave risk. The ACLU successfully sued the Trump administration when it implemented asylum bans. And now we're suing the Biden administration over their own ban. For more on how the ACLU is fighting for the rights of asylum seekers, go to ACLU.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we uncork the notion of drinking bottled wine versus canned wine. Yeah, wine in a can. Wine connoisseurs may stay true to the bottle, but wine canisters have adopted the untraditional packaging for its added convenience, ideal for picnics, concerts, and outdoor events, really anywhere corkscrews are scarce. And since aluminum cools faster than glass, it reduces the time it takes to chill your favorite Sauvignon Blanc. But swirling your wine in a glass does help it open up, which gives it a lot more flavor. Of course, you can always transfer your canned wine to a glass, but if you're looking to experience the subtleties of a nice bottle, drinking from a glass adds a lot. There are wines more suited to the bottle, and there are those well-suited for the canned life. Crisp and sparkling whites and rosés in particular tend to fare best in cans, but bigger, bolder wines will usually benefit from a nice glass. It would seem both have their place. Still on the fence between bottles or cans? There's always wine in a box. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, 
let's take a few minutes to talk about the latest uh, episode of Republican Romper Room. So, Bill, I think you've now identified yourself in the last panel as a conservative Democrat, but certainly a, a former stalwart Republican. And when I said that, Bill just shook his head like, you know, this. The new speaker, Mike Johnson, managed to avoid another funding debacle with a short-term funding bill, but 42% of his caucus objected. And the next day, conservatives blocked another spending bill. So where does this put new speaker Johnson in terms of the ongoing dynamic with the House R's, particularly the extreme right wing of the caucus? Are we, as, as one Republican member said, same clown car with a different driver. There's a ton of clownishness about it. And I think he's also very extreme and very dangerous, more than actually McCarthy. At the end of the day, for all the, you know, oh, you couldn't get this appropriations bill through. Oh, we only got 40, 60, 58% of the Republicans. There's no government shutdown. If there were a government shutdown, I think people could say, this is the Repub this is your Republican House at work. And this is the Republican Party at work. And it would become a bit of an issue going forward. There's no shutdown. There's a nice photo of them. They all, you know, well, there's a photo, I guess, literally, but they're all worked together to make it happen. Jeffries has to say truthfully that I was able to work this out with Speaker Johnson. Biden's going to say that when he signs the CR. Now, it only gets you through two months and maybe everything blows up then. I think that's quite possible. Meanwhile, as someone who's kind of concerned about Ukraine and foreign policy, there's no funding for Ukraine. So for all the, oh, it's a clown car and they can't win anything, they have postponed what, on September 25th, if we had been having this conversation, we would have said is very likely to happen in the next week or two, which is actual funding for the then top foreign policy priority of the Biden administration and the United States of America and most of Europe, incidentally. And now with Israel, it's more a little more complicated, but that's not got funding either. So the degree to which they sort of win kind of in a substantive way, sort of, I mean, they didn't cut government spending, I understand all that for all the, the, the clownishness and stuff. And now we've got Speaker Johnson second in line in the presidency, by far the most radical speaker in modern American history. Religious views like you've never heard of sort of American leader. Now, I, I think that's a close focus for a future episode. Let me just talk about the party a little. Here's our sort of closeout question. You know, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy accused of kidney punching one of his opponents. James Comer calls a Democratic colleague a liar and a smurf. I was going to ask you, Allison, what exactly is a smurf? And then to top it off, Senator Mullen challenges a witness to a fight. The question is, is this sort of staged and, you know, political points in the base? Or is the whole Republican caucus basically just losing its shit? Well, I, I have a short answer to that, which is that the House in particular has been in session for 10 straight weeks. One of my colleagues quoted, I don't know if it was Boehner or somebody like that, saying if you're in for more than three weeks at a time, like you've done something wrong. So like it's a bit of a close quarters, madhouse. They're all, they're all sick of being around each other, especially because no, they don't seem to really like each other very much. So I think this is just tensions boiling over. It's a reflection of the fact that there isn't really a strong leadership. I don't think Mike Johnson is a strong leader. He's got no capital He's, he's sort of still getting and figuring out how the office even works. And so in a leaderless situation, these tensions are just boiling over with no one to kind of right the ship for them. 
that Bernie Sanders. Right. He's, the, he's the guy who brings them to, you are a United States senator. A socialist. Yeah. The only socialist in the United States Senate is defending exactly. the, the dignity of the United exactly. States Senate. Yeah. Well, I just like the idea that 10 weeks is their sanity shelf life. Like that's, exactly. that's It's going to expire at nine weeks. Yeah. Everybody go home. You can't yeah. handle it after that. Right. But, but Harry, well, here again, I like that you guys are talking about politics and I know that that's really important. But why are you burying the most fascinating part of Mike Jones? Johnson, which is his fascinating backstory, where I didn't even know about a covenant marriage. I thought marriage was a covenant that I was entering, that we were all entering into. I didn't know that it had to be extra. And the like accountability deal that he has with his 17-year-old son about monitoring pornography, like this is fascinating to me. Let me truthfully answer your question, which is I, I had a few questions on this. I realized there's just no way. This has to be another episode. Mike Johnson is so... Crazy. And it's funny because he's got this kind of dweeby glasses little. Th- I don't think a lot of American people have sort of figured out, man, is he out there? Last word to you on this, former Republican Bill Crystal. Well, just on Allison's point on this, what's the story with a no bank account? That gets reported in a very kind of, well, he just happens not to have a bank account. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. Is that even like possible in my, I guess it's possible in modern America. I guess he's paying his taxes on his, we just, you know, still pay taxes if you don't have a bank account. But there's something we, really weird about the whole financial backstory on, on him, I believe, in that respect. I don't know. I just feel like there's more going on there, perhaps. There was a world he lived in where you didn't need a bank account to live a decent middle-class life. I don't know. That's a pretty uh, unusual situation. It's so true. And it's not just his religious views are extreme, but they've got this. He he seems a little like tame in person, but he's got these fire and brimstone views about, you know, is God going to allow our nation to enter a time of judgment for our collective sins? Uh, we need to have a big episode on uh, Mike Johnson. but. We are out of time, uh, leaving just one minute for our final feature of five words or fewer, in which we take a question from a, a viewer, and everyone has to answer in five words or fewer. And today's question, considering Trump, Don Jr., Erica, Ivanka all recently took the stand in New York, what will the vibes be at the Trump's Thanksgiving table in 2023? Stony silence. <laughs> Three words left over. Excellent debut entry, <laughs> Kyle Cheney. Bloated and gaseous. <laughs> so far, we're winning. <laughs> and I'm going in Bill's direction. It's the perfect Thanksgiving dinner. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Allison, Bill, and Kyle. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content as well as daily explanations by me of important developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. 
whether they're for talking five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McCardle, our research producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and production assistance by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Our endless gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.